Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Paula Lillard Preschlack. Paula was a teacher and the head of school at Forest Bluff School in Illinois for over 25 years. Her work focuses on the principles and benefits of the Montessori approach. Paula attended Hampshire College and holds a master's degree in education from Loyola College in Maryland, and she has Montessori AMI diplomas for ages 0 to 12, and she audited the Orientation to Adolescent Studies. Essentially, she's done Montessori training at every level. Paula and her husband Jim have two children, now 18 and 20 years old. Her new book, The Montessori Potential, will be published in February 2023. In this conversation, Paula and I discuss her experiences growing up as a Montessori child and how she decided to go into the field of Montessori education herself. We discuss her new book, The Montessori Potential, and we talk specifically about some of the important features of Montessori's language curriculum throughout the planes of development. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paula. Hi, Paula. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Gabrielle. This is really special for me. I'm so grateful. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, To start, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. Okay. Um, My name is Paula Lillard Preschlack. I live in Lake Forest, Illinois, in the United States. And I, right now, I consider myself a full-time writer and speaker about Montessori education, Uh, but I have been a Montessori teacher of primary ages, Montessori teacher of lower elementary. Uh, For many years, I worked as an assistant head of school and then the head of school at Forest Bluff School in Lake Bluff, Illinois, for 25 years. So I've been in Montessori for a long time, and I did my AMI Montessori training for zero to three, three to six, six to 12, and then uh, the adolescent program I audited. And I have two children who are now, oh my gosh, they're both in college. They both went all the way through Montessori, one through high school, one just took to the eighth grade at the school that I worked um, in, and um, they're doing wonderfully. And that's a little bit about where I'm coming from. So awesome. We're going to get into all of that. Um, But first, I want to hear about your Montessori journey. And am I correct in that you went to Montessori school as a child? I did. I did. I my family, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm the youngest of five daughters. And my family moved to Illinois when I was two. And my mother wanted me to go to Montessori school. And so she drove me to a school that was, gosh, almost 40 minutes away sometimes with the traffic uh, so that I could go from ages three to six. It's still there. It's called Ronald Knox Montessori School. And I remember my teacher was Miss Anna. She was a nun. 
And um, I remember singing Kumbaya. I remember the Pink Tower. I remember standing in line for a very long time to do the hand washing because I loved the beautiful bowl that the hand washing set had. And I have very fond memories of being in Montessori. And then after that, there was no Montessori elementary in the area at that time. And so this was in the 70s. So then I went to uh, traditional school, the school where my mother was a kindergarten teacher, uh, all the way up through the ninth grade, went to traditional high school, and um, on from there. So. Nice. And your mother is also a Montessorian, and she's written some books about Montessori education. So what was it like growing up with a parent who is a Montessorian? And what memories do you have of being aware that your mother was a teacher? Yes. Um, well, I would say that I grew up with a very much of a Montessori approach at home. Our home life was very uh, Montessori-like. And I think partly to the fact that I was the fifth child and there's a real distance between my older sisters and myself. I'm eight years younger than the next sister. Um, so they were kind of a pack of four and then there was a big gap and then I was this caboose. And so my parents were also very relaxed, I think, with me. And I had a lot of freedom um, with the responsibilities uh, at, at home. My mother, you know, she started, um, I wasn't really aware of some of these things until recently, but she started her Montessori journey in Cincinnati, uh, where she was a young mother and she and many of her friends were hearing about Montessori. She had some friends who were Catholic. And at that time in the 60s, people were finding out about Montessori in the United States, mostly from this magazine called Jubilee, which was a Catholic parent magazine. And some of her friends had heard about Montessori and said, this sounds really neat. Um, they started a Montessori classroom at Cincinnati Country Day School. And my mother was the first assistant in the first class. Uh, two of my sisters were in it. She thought I'd better uh, get in there and see what this is. And then she and her friends started the Cincinnati Montessori Society. They helped get the Xavier AMS Montessori uh, training started, which is still there. I just went about two weeks ago to see it for the first time. It was really neat. They welcomed me so warmly. And it was really, really neat to see because I've always heard that history as I was growing up. But then my family moved to Chicago because of my father's job. And that was hard on my mother. You can imagine leaving all of that behind that she had built and all of her friendships and where she'd had her children and when they were young and everything. Um, and here she started teaching the kindergarten class at the school, Lake Forest Country Day School, where I went. And I remember as a first grader, I, I went through first grade twice because the first year I pretended I was a dog the whole time. So <laughs> I had to repeat first grade. And I spent a lot of time that first year also going down the hallway to my mother's classroom because she had the Montessori materials in there and she was teaching in a Montessori fashion. So it felt very comforting to me to see that. So I was aware of my mother being a kindergarten teacher. I had no idea that when she had been in Cincinnati, she wrote a book called Montessori, A Modern Approach, which has become, you know, a real classic in Montessori. And I had no idea. I just knew that she was the teacher of the kindergarten class and she was very humble and low key about everything. 
And um, growing up with her being a teacher meant that we always had to go to school really early. I had to sit, you know, and wait for school to start. And I remember there were donuts that the teachers got in the teacher's lounge, and that was a big hit. But I had to wait around after school for her. She was often late to pick me up places, you know. So growing up with a working mother, um, and but I didn't really realize until high school what she had done with the book that she'd written. And by that time, she actually she actually went and took her AMI training. She had AMS training when she was in Cincinnati. She was in one of the first classes at Xavier. But she um, took AMI training in Milwaukee when I was in eighth grade. And I remember distinctly that she had to have somebody else pick me up from school every day because she had to drive all the way to Milwaukee, which is about an hour away to do her training. So I was aware that she was doing this and she and my sister, Lynn Jessen and their colleague, Lynn, uh, Jane Lenari started Forest Bluff School with 15 children in a classroom. And that's when they started their school. So I was aware by that time and into high school that she was building a school, that she was launching this. And I started to see her in that role more. So. That's a little bit of the the journey of of watching her. Yeah. And so were you always intrigued by education? Were you always interested in becoming a Montessori teacher? Or was that a surprise in your own journey? Uh, it's a really good question because both. I think when I was little, because my mother was a teacher, I would, you know, line the little uh, stuffed animals and dolls up and pretend to be a teacher and things like that. Um, but I didn't see myself as becoming an educator. I was really interested in animals, thus my pretending to be a dog when I was younger. Uh, I love horses. And up through college, I was really interested in working with animals. Um, I loved working with people too, but I was more familiar with working with animals. And I studied a lot of animal behavior, animal cognition, training, those um, looked into some of those fields. And when I graduated, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with that. And I tried a few different things. And, you know, in life, sometimes doors open and paths start and you don't have complete control over that. There's a little bit of... Um, it's a communication between what's open to you and what you're trying to make happen. And some of the things I was trying to make happen just weren't. I always loved to write. And I was, I thought I wanted to become a writer. I worked in a bookstore. I did a, 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 quite a few different things. But sitting on the couch with my older sister, Lynn Jessen, who kept bringing me ice cream and talking to me about what I was going to do with my life, she kept saying, you should just go take Montessori training. And I really didn't want to because I I don't know about you, but being in your early 20s, I think I still had a little bit of that teenager. I don't want to be just like my family. I want to be my own person. And my sister and my mother would get so intense when they would talk about Montessori. They were so into building the school. They were so excited about it. They were so passionate that it kind of turned me off. I thought this is really like religious for you guys. Can we please talk about something else? And they'd say, oh, sure. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. And then they go right back into it, you know, with this intensity. 
And so I wasn't really attracted to that, but I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And one of the big parts of my story, I think, is that uh, I was also an artist in high school and I had decided I was going to go to art school for college. I was not interested in at all in traditional school anymore. I was really um, turned off by my experiences in high school. And I decided to apply to one college that where you could design your own major and you had a lot of freedom to go in the direction of your interests. And I thought, well, this I kind of can't go wrong. It's also part of many other schools where I could transfer pretty easily if I didn't like it. So I went to a school called Hampshire College in Massachusetts. It's called it's part of five colleges, Smith College, where two of my sisters and my mother went, Mount Holyoke College. Uh, University of Massachusetts and Amherst, and then there's Hampshire is part of those five. And so you can take classes at all five. And I went without even seeing it. I applied early decision, I got in and I went and it completely changed my life. It was so such a transformation for me to go from a discouraged student who felt very um, turned off by the amount of control uh, and lack of choice in my education to a person who had all the doors flung open and I couldn't wait to get out of bed in the morning. I raced to my classes. I couldn't understand why anyone would want to skip a class. I was so turned on by everything I was learning. My professors were so exciting to talk to. So I had this experience of what would happen if you could choose and how self-motivating that is for a young person. And so I saw that in Montessori, these children in my mother's classroom at age three and four and five years old were able to choose. And I knew what that does for a person from the inside, what that felt like. And I thought, wow, that's really amazing that you could actually have that experience your whole life and not have to wait to go to some alternative college or graduate school program. You could have that experience as a younger person. And so my sister talked me into going to Washington, D.C. to take the AMI training with Kay Baker and Peter Gebhardt Seeley, these two wonderful characters. And I took the elementary training because I thought, well, I can't work with really little children. You know, I want to work with children who are, you know, at least school age. Um, but I didn't even know if I wanted to be a teacher. I really just wanted to learn more about Montessori. And my sister was so convincing and persuasive. She kept saying, just think, you, you'd always be able to get a job anywhere in the world once you have AMI training. And um, you have nothing better to do. And, you, and you'll learn so many things about topics that you didn't get in school. <laughs> because I wasn't paying attention sometimes. So when I went for that training, which was incredible and I loved it, the first thing that happened is that um, you have to take a little pre-course. Um, if you're going to study the elementary first, you have to have a little, like a four-week um, symposium about the primary level so that you have the foundation. And that was given to us by a woman named Hildegard Sulzbacher, who was a German this German woman who was so special. And the minute she started talking the first day, I was so 
moved. And I many Montessori teachers will say this, that there was some moment in their life, right, where they were just moved in some very spiritual way of this is so special, I've got to do this. And that's what it was like for me, I had that transformative moment of this is something so much more special than anything else I could contribute to in the world with working with animals or doing these other things. This is, this is it for me. I want to work with children. I want to help free that feeling inside them, that motivation that they can learn what's interesting to them and give to the world and be passionate about what they do. So that's sort of my journey of saying, I'm not going to be a teacher. I'm not going to be like my mom to, oh my gosh, this is really special. Now I understand why, you know, my sister and my mom are so passionate about it and get so crazy (laughs) when you're talking. Yeah. I, you know, I loved what you said about uh, your experience in college and comparing it to Montessori education, because I also went to a small liberal arts college. I went to Vassar College. And when I am describing Montessori to somebody who's never heard of it before, I sometimes say it's the liberal arts school of preschools, because you get to learn what you're interested in and, you know, follow your own motivations. Uh, So I love that comparison. I've, I've felt that a lot as well. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about language in the Montessori curriculum. What are some of the important features of Montessori's language curriculum? And um, as someone who's done all the trainings, how does language progress through the planes of development? Well, I would say, and I know many of your listeners are parents, so I think there's so much to say about the language materials and the way that Maria Montessori designed the language curriculum to meet the way that children really learn. They're completely unique. There's no other form of education that I know of that makes so much sense for the way that human beings learn. And she was a scientist and she was a medical doctor that was trained and worked first with children who have Um, major disabilities. So she really learned to observe and soak in what she was seeing and then figure out what might help this learning being and experiment in a very systematic way to find just what was just right and then test it with many different children in many different situations from other cultures and really really come up with what is the thing that will do this job for that child. And so it makes it incredibly special. And and one of the things I love, you know, the progression is that we begin with spoken language and communication, language being all communication, the eye contact with the infant, um, the communication of touch with the infant, sound, Um, responding to the infant, to their signals back to us, showing them right away that we are what communication is. So all of that awareness that Montessori brings to our experience as parents and as educators is so special. 
So we begin with the spoken language in, you know, I'm going to sort of jump to primary where we do two things that are really major, I think. The first is the the sound, the study of sounds, because Montessori noticed very young children are sensorial learners. They're learning through touch, through hearing. Um, they are listening. They have incredible uh, acute hearing. So they'll hear these sounds that are very, very far away and want to talk about the, the sounds that they hear, that you see them really paying attention. So we start with that, with spoken language, speaking and communicating with the child when they first start coming into the classroom. And then the sound game, which is one of my very favorite, favorite things. Um, in a little basket, perhaps, tiny little objects that are real objects, um, like a tiny little cup, a tiny little tree, a tiny little rake, these little objects that are very appealing, the children want to touch them. And taking out one object and saying, cup, cup to say cup and passing it to the children and they're saying cup 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 begins with the sound cup and the child is so the children are so drawn to this they want to find all the sounds in these words but because it's an object it has meaning it's not something abstract it's real to them so bringing their awareness to their world of, of helping them to explore sound in that way. The other really major thing I think that language starts out with in prime, the primary classroom is the idea that children can write before they can read. And my mother has a really great explanation of this in the, a chapter in her book, Montessori, A Modern Approach, if people are interested in learning about the basics of Montessori. It is such a good explanation. The children um, can express their idea before they can write with their hand. And so it makes so much sense that first we're, we're preparing the hand for writing simultaneously with the metal insets that they're tracing, with everything they trace before they pick up a pencil, like the botany cabinet, the geometry cabinet, everything we do with the hand, the wrist, the touch, um, getting all of that mechanics, all those mechanics prepared before they're even holding a pencil and trying to make a certain shape. The sandpaper letters, which they're tracing, saying the sound, listening to the sound, feeling that, feeling it with their hand, their arm. Their, the, the sandpaper letters are big because they have to move their whole arm for some of those letters. So this physical experience of sound and symbol, and then taking those symbols as they learn them and arranging them to make words, to make sounds that make sense to them. So they're eventually making rug, er, uh, g, and they're finding er, uh, and g, these three wooden representations of the letters, and they're putting them in that order, and we're showing them how to do that. And the, the amazing discovery that you can tell someone else what's in your head without saying it out loud. And that means writing. And so for a child to realize, I just gave my teacher an idea that I didn't say out loud is this magic. So we, we introduce to children the magic of written with the fact that human beings can write 
the magic of sound, the magic of how we communicate and how we've developed these sounds to and arrange them in such a way that we can pass this meaning from one brain into another person's brain in these ways. I mean, it just is so exciting for them. So they discover language. It's not something we sit down, we teach them now, we tell them now we're going to teach you how to read. And this is an A and this is a B and this is a C. And all of that really makes no sense in the way that human beings function. So Montessori always approaches anything with the spirit first, the excitement, the joy, the motivation, the purpose of something, and then starts to show the mechanical ways to make it happen. So you then have the phonetic object game where there are objects that take those little objects and say, I'm going to write you a message for the child. So again, it's like a game. It's really fun and it's interactive. And the teacher very, very slowly writes C-E-U-P, cup. And the child sounds it out and attaches it to that object. There's a meaning. There's a purpose for the, for the little word. And so all of that writing goes on from there. All of that reading goes on from there, labeling everything in the room, just an explosion of excitement over this topic. And you go from there into elementary, you start analyzing sentences, you start talking about what words do in different parts of a, of a sentence. One word gives you the action. One word tells you which one. It tells you whether it's red, it's tall, it's round. You know, these, these words have different um, purposes in a sentence. So as they learn sentence analysis, they learn parts of grammar, they learn punctuation, so on. They move into the elementary and that, that all of that analyzing just continues and intensifies with analyzing um, suffixes, prefixes, all those Latin roots of words. And I think that takes you into all the other languages, right? So all the interest in other languages occurs as they're studying whatever is their own language. So I won't go any further than that, but I'll just say, you know, there's always games involved. There's purpose involved. It's always coming from an internal need, um, to be satisfied and interactive with other people. So they're not sitting around uh, waiting for somebody to tell them how to do these things. It's a it's an active learning. I'll just tell you one other thing that I think is really neat for parents to know is that one of the reasons I think many Montessori graduates become terrific writers, really good at expressing themselves um, with writing. And I think one of the reasons is that we emphasize reading for pleasure so much. And so they read, at least in our school, they tend to read a lot. And so they get a lot of that vocabulary and expression and examples of good writing. But the other thing is that the way that the Montessori classroom conducts itself allows for a lot of time and space for thinking and for making connections and making mental connections between things. And that happens especially as, as they get older and older. So you'll have, for example, you know, I remember sitting at a lunch table once with some children and we were all sitting, we eat lunch in the classroom at our school. So they're surrounded by the curriculum all the time. They see it on the shelves. 
And one child said, um, mentioned, you know, it's really interesting that it's October and October was on the calendar. And we were studying, uh, talking about the prefix act today, act eight. Is it the eighth month? And so they start having this little conversation about that. They're trying to figure that out. Another one says, Oct is an octagon. I was working with the geometry cabinet today. Octagon. Oct has eight sides to an octagon. And another one says, Octavia was is the name of, of a Greek um, goddess in my, in my Greek myths I was reading today. So Octavia. And then another says, Octavia is where my grandmother's from. <laughs> There's a town called Octavia and I don't know, Pennsylvania or something. And so they're making all these connections. But the reason they're making those connections is because there's time for that interaction, for that thinking, for that wondering, for that wandering in their minds. It's like real life. And it it sets that tone for them of reflection, self-reflection and reflection on what you're learning. So I think the language materials and curriculum in Montessori is so unique and so special in that way. And of course, we could talk about any topic in Montessori and I could tell, I could tell <laughs> that one's amazing too. But language for your listeners, I think um, those are just some of the things I love to to share with people about why, why it's so special. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Even, you know, being a Montessori and myself, hearing you talk about the magic of a child writing for the first time or reading for the first time gets me emotional. It really is special to witness. Mm -hmm. Interrupting my conversation for just a minute to tell you about multilingual Montessori consultations. I conduct language consultations with families, schools, and teachers about Montessori education and multiple language acquisition and development. If you have questions about how to raise bilingual or multilingual children, if you're interested in introducing an additional language to your child but not sure how to go about it, or if you're looking for advice on how to incorporate Montessori into your family's daily routine, you can schedule a one-on-one -on -one session with me to discuss all of these topics and more. Reach out to me through the link in the show notes or on Instagram if you'd like more information about scheduling a consultation. So let's talk a little bit about your new book, which comes out in February. The Montessori Potential is about how to foster independence, respect, and joy in every child. So tell me about how the idea for this book came about and what you hope people will get out of this book. Oh, great. I am so excited to share this with people. I love to write, as I mentioned earlier, and I've written lots of blog articles for the parents at our school, which are open to everyone on the website. And I love giving talks and, and explaining Montessori. It's something I had to do a lot as a head of school for so many years. And so I wanted to I wanted to write this book because no one else was doing it. I mean, it was there was a reason, there was a need for it. And it wasn't so much I want to write a book. It was somebody's got to write this book. Someone's got to write down for people why Montessori is so spectacular 
and why it meets the needs that we have today in our society for young people, why it meets the needs that are not being met in education. Uh, people keep talking about how frustrated they are with traditional education, especially for K through 12. And yet I'm thinking, but we have the answer, it's Montessori. And I found myself so many times on an airplane or at a dinner table or somewhere trying to explain to someone why Montessori is answers all these questions. And by the end of the conversation, they'd be so convinced, but then it wouldn't go anywhere from there. So I thought, you know, there's we've got to reach more people with this message of how special Montessori is. I've seen it happen. I see these graduates who are just such incredible people. They they become themselves and they expand, they sort of fill out their full potential. And every person could be doing this. So I also wanted to address other problems that I saw, um, a lot of misunderstanding of what Montessori is. Why is there so much misunderstanding? Why are there so many misrepresentations of Montessori? I mean, people who are Montessori teachers even are looking at each other and saying, I don't really understand the differences between AMS and AMI and these other trainings, and I don't understand what anybody else is doing. So a lack of continuity, a lack of connection between all of us who are all, you know, we're all exploring Montessori and we all want to go somewhere with it, but a lack of connection. Um, so I wanted to address that. And I'll tell you, the funny thing is when you set out to write a book and you've never done it before, and I was a bit in a vacuum because I was teaching in the school. I was actually teaching at the school, running the school and trying to start writing the book. And I had my own family as well to take care of. And I wanted to say everything I had always wanted to say about Montessori to every audience. <laughs> so I wrote some of it was to teachers and some was to parents and some was to policymakers and like, you know, grandparents and people, you know, superintendents of public schools. And so I was all over the place. So my first draft was just wild and long and crazy. And um, I was really, really fortunate in that a publisher was willing to look at it and said, okay, you've got three major problems here and goodbye. Um, but thank God they did because that person guided me with how to fix it, choose one audience, choose you know the specific problems that you're trying to answer. And I can't remember the third one is off the top of my head right now, but it was um, very clear what I needed to do. And I said, okay, I'll do that and I'll come back. And I don't think they really believed me but I just thought I'm not giving up until I get this out there to where it needs to be. So to make a long story short, it's been a six year journey that has been a lot of rewriting and just determination to bring this book to answer those questions. So does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> Off on a tangent there, but um, but I'm excited to what I what I what I ended up. I'll tell you this: what I ended up doing to help the layperson. So the audience I chose is parents. 
I thought if I can get to parents and explain Montessori to them, they're going to read this book and say, I want this book. I'm going to give this book to the local um, public school board members because I want to see Montessori in our public school, a program at least offered as an option. I'm going to take it to the grandparents to explain why we go to this weird school. I'm going to take it to my niece who's about to have a baby. So I thought if I can if I can reach parents, the parents will take this book to other people with enthusiasm. And I know Montessori teachers and educators will read it because we don't have that many books um, besides Maria Montessori's books are amazing and there are some you know many others but there aren't Montessori books coming out every year. Um, so we're excited to have something to read. So I knew they would they would want to read it and, and learn about our school and examples and my own personal experiences. But what I did for the lay person to understand why Montessori is so meaningful and what the whole point is and what we ought to be doing with education in our country is I chose eight traits that I believe Montessori graduates develop. There are many more than eight, but I chose eight key ones to keep focusing on. And I just thought I'm going to tell people over and over and over on every page, in every example, all the different ways that we do this. We actually build, build young people or they build themselves, right? But we support them to build in themselves these traits to be engaged in the world around them, to be focused, to be able to focus and concentrate their attention, to be organized, to have physical and, and mental organization to their thoughts, to be curious, like curiosity is something that drives you forward, to continue to be curious, to be courageous. I see them being so bold and I think that comes directly from the way that we support them when they're young, to be collaborative, they really know how to work with other people, to be respectful to the environment, to other people, to people they don't even know, um, to themselves, to have respect, and to be resourceful, and, you know, really independent and able to figure things out and, and draw on resources that are around them. So engaged, focused, organized, curious, courageous, collaborative, respectful, resourceful. And we put that on the back of the bookmark that is to promote the book for people. Oh, I love so it. on the back, you get a bookmark. You can then, when you're reading the book, kind of look for those um, for those traits that I keep mentioning all the way through. So I thought I'm going to prove to people, I'm going to show them exactly how and where Montessori does this, because you hear all the time a, a school will say, oh, we help our children to be innovative, creative problem solvers. And then you say, how, where, you know, because you have a STEM lab, where you tell them what to do and what the answer is going to be. And you already know the answer and you are waiting for them to say it, or, you know, they're all different models that, that may or may not work. But I do know that in Montessori, we can show exactly how, where, and, and why. So that's really what the book is for is, is to meet that, meet that need. Awesome. I'm looking forward to reading it. 
Okay, I have one or two more questions for you. Um, you mentioned that your children are in college now, so they're young adults, but I'm curious about how the way that you thought about Montessori changed once you had children and as they got older and you know, went through the different planes of development because you already knew so much about Montessori already. What changed for you or what was surprising as you were parenting Montessori children? Well, I would say that my view of Montessori didn't change when I became a parent, um, but something else did happen. The way it didn't change is that I kind of saw my children as two specimens <laughs> going through, through all of these stages of development, two of many, many, many examples that I saw. Uh, because perhaps because I've been fortunate enough to have the training at all the different levels and be observing all the different levels all the time, because as a head of school, you're looking at babies, you're looking, you know, infants, you're looking at children who are just learning how to walk, you're going in and out of classrooms all day long, all the way up through adolescence and seeing those 13 and 14 year olds. So I was always watching all of those stages. And so I kind of looked at my own children of sort of with this, um, this approach of, huh, this is interesting, <laughs> looking at you and how it's manifesting in you. But what did change for me is I think as a parent, I became aware of how hard parents were working to follow every suggestion that I as a head of school or their teacher, the teachers of their children were making. And that sometimes, you know, when I became a parent, I realized, oh, wait, they need us to say, don't try to be too perfect. And I don't think I really realized that until I was a parent and I realized, well, I'm not trying to be too perfect. Then I would really mess my children up. And I didn't, I didn't know to say that before. It was, you know, read your children every single night, make sure you're sitting down as a family um, for every dinner, um, make sure they're doing the dishes and they're helping out at home and doing their own laundry by the time they're eight and make sure that, you know, um, you're not over scheduling them and don't let this happen and don't let that happen. You wouldn't say it quite like that, but, you know, I think my expectations were high and people people's expectations of themselves are high as parents. And they just think, oh my gosh, if there's a night where I don't read to my child, I'm a really bad parent. Or if, you know, we don't have dinner together every single night, this is like, I'm going to get in trouble if someone finds out, or I'm not doing what's best for my child. And people are so hard on themselves. And I realized I was letting myself off the hook some of the time. Um, it's important not to be sloppy and, and not pay any attention to these guidelines because they are really, they really do make a difference. The more we can do these things, the, the better the outcomes for our children, the better we can support them with the structure. But when I saw people trying to make their homes into Montessori schools where they had all the little sets of everything set up in the kitchen so their child could do all of these activities and this little art area and things like that. I just thought, uh-oh, no, 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 no. 
because what happens then is they come in the classroom and they're like more of the same well let's go see what sally's doing (laughs) (laughs) they're not interested so the classroom is meant to be the community where they have all of these choices and options the home is meant to be the home and we only need to provide a few different examples a few different options of you know we don't it doesn't all have to be perfect it has to be natural it has to be comfortable we're doing a lot of modeling at home and um Children need home to be where the expectations are natural and not um, too high, um, not too low and not too high. So, and, and for everyone, that's going to be different. It's going to be individual. So I think what I would say to parents listening is that I, by the time I was stepping out of being head of school and, and dedicating myself about a year ago to full-time writing the book and finishing it, um, by the very end, the very last talks I gave to parents, I found myself saying the same thing over and over. And I just thought, if you can do nothing else in your entire parenting journey, the one thing I would say is believe in your children and tell them that you do. Just do that. And everything else falls into place. When you say, I believe in you, I think you can do this. And then don't tell them what to do or how to do it or what you think would be best. (laughs) But just say, you're going to figure it out. And I think you're wonderful. And I see these incredible abilities in you. And if we can just do that one thing as parents, everything else falls into place. And isn't it ironic that that's what Maria Montessori said we should do? Have faith in the child. Because inside every human being is all of the creative material that that one seed needs to become something incredible and none of us know what that's going to be including that being but we can nurture and support it and not get too involved let it be give more space and love and appreciate it and appreciate that it has these powers And I think empowering other human beings in that way is really what it's all about. So I hope people will take my book and take your podcast and take, you know, a talk from a teacher at their school and take those as encouragement to do what they're doing, which is really incredible. Being a parent, being a teacher no, I can't imagine anything that could be more important or more impactful to affect the world and make this a better place. We're actually doing something about it. I remember quite distinctly when when 9-11 happened, I was an assistant head of school and I was alone in the building. I was The head of school was my mother and she was not there at the moment. And I was walking through the hallway and hearing about this and everyone was saying, what are we going to do? And I said, well, we're just going to carry on. And the children are just, we're not going to talk to them about it. We're not going to, they don't need to be interrupted to be told they're in a safe place. Parents have a lot to absorb and, and work out. We just carried on calmly. And I thought, you know, when these horrible things happen in the world, I know that we are already doing everything we can to make this a better world. 
So what a powerful position to be in that we don't need to get completely overwhelmed, discouraged, anxious, depressed about the state of whatever's going on in the world because we are doing something about it. I think we can be very hopeful about the future and that Montessori education helps us to have that approach. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love, I love thinking about Montessori from stepping out of, you know, the, the weeds of how to give a lesson, which is of course very important, but really stepping back and thinking, what are we really doing here? What is it really all for? So I appreciate you bringing that to our attention today. And um, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. This was such a great conversation. Uh, I can't wait to read your book. It's out in February and I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much, Paula. Thank you. Gabrielle, this has really been enjoyable and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience and share news of my book and I would love to do it again. I can't wait to continue these conversations and um, travel and see people. And so thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. And I appreciate what you're doing for, for families and for teachers and everyone by sharing, uh, you know, your interviews with so many wonderful uh, educators and people. Thank you. Thank you again to Paula for joining me for this conversation. Her new book, The Montessori Potential, will be out in February 2023 and is now available for pre-order everywhere books are sold. You can find Paula on her website at paulalillardpreschlock.com and you can find links to her social media accounts there as well as in the episode description. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. This will be the last episode of the podcast for 2022, and I'll be back with new episodes in 2023. Thanks again for listening, and see you in the new year.